listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Oh, good uh, good morning, good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in with us today. Welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries. Today, I'm very happy to talk to um, Namrata Kalachalam, who is based in India. She's a freelance uh, journalist. Thank you for tuning in with us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we want to talk a little bit about the uh, situation in, in India, um, that a country that went on lockdown about five weeks ago. What is the situation like right now in India? And I think you're based in Mumbai. Um, what is the situation like at the moment? Uh, are people, you know, what measures have been taken by the Modi, uh, Modi government? Yeah, um, so like you said, we've been on lockdown for more than five weeks now. We started on March 24th. Uh, it was supposed to end in April, but it has been extended until May 3rd. It's possible that it will be extended further from there, um, at least in a number of states, including Maharashtra, where I live. So the situation here has been very different for different groups of people. For the middle and upper class here, um, it's been challenging the same way it might be challenging almost anywhere else. But for the most vulnerable populations, there's been very little government support. They've been very much dependent on NGO support, which is uh, hit or miss sometimes just depending on whether they can actually get through to provide supplies. The whole country has been under lockdown, 1.3 billion people, which is a huge undertaking. It's very, very quiet outside. There are very few people out and about. There's essential shops only. If you try to leave your neighborhood, there's a number of checkpoints. So it's, it's very um, strange here. It's, it's very unusual circumstances, especially in a city like Mumbai. We have 20 million people and it's a very dense city. So uh, very, very unusual circumstances. When the country went on lockdown, I feel like it was very kind of abrupt. It was a little bit here as well, but you know, and it did cause here in Canada a bit of a sense of panic. So I must have, you know, in India, it must have been even even worse, considering it's a country, like you said, of 1.3 billion. Yeah, it was quite chaotic here. Um, so when Prime Minister Narendra Modi made the announcement, uh, it was around 8 p.m. on March 24th and a lot of the shops had already shut, uh, and his speech was pretty ambiguous about whether there would be essential services still open and available to people. So uh, people understandably panicked a lot, um, raced out into the streets to get to the grocery stores. Hundreds of people were there, um, not social distancing, of course, trying to get their hands on whatever they could to survive for 21 days. The government did try to do some damage control when they saw the the panic that the speech created in people, and they put out some um, tweets and they put out some statements. But at that point, the damage was done. So um, one thing that we're noticing is that cities, be it Montreal here in Canada or New York, or you know 
big cities in Italy or wherever, it's it's they're particularly affected by the pandemic because everybody is busy, you know, sitting and living on top of each other. Mm. And you know, in India, because it must be in a way even worse. So I overcrowded uh, overcrowded cities with you know with a lot of like urban inequalities dealing with this i know you wrote an article about asia's um, largest slum um over the weekend or last week can you talk a little bit about what the situation is like over there i know you spoke to a few people yeah um like you said it's especially challenging to have a lockdown in city like mumbai uh, which is home to asia's largest slum um this is an unofficial settlement right in the heart of Mumbai with 1 million people living there. So social distancing is just basically impossible. Uh, people live in um, small homes with sometimes six to eight family members in 100 square feet of space. Um, usually that space is very poorly ventilated and it is uh, among the hottest times of the entire year right now. So people have also really struggled to stay indoors. There's a constant challenge of getting food within Daravi, which is the name of the slum. Um, people say that that's one of their absolute biggest concerns is that they have ration cards uh, that should entitle them to a very small amount of rice, a small amount of wheat, but uh, that hasn't always worked out for people. A lot of times people, especially migrant workers, which Mumbai has hundreds of thousands of migrant workers living here and especially in Daravi, they don't qualify for these ration cards because their permanent address is not Mumbai. And so there's a lot of food insecurity problems here. Um, a lot of people, hundreds of people usually use the same communal restrooms, so it's really hard to stay, stay away from coronavirus. The area has more than 250 cases of coronavirus so far. So authorities have really zoomed in on it and they've been trying to contain the spread over there. Unfortunately, that's also come with other kinds of challenges. A lot of police surveillance drones that will fly over their neighborhoods to make sure that people are not venturing outside. Um, a lot of violence, um, police entering neighborhoods with sticks and beating people up when they see them outside. And one last thing I want to mention is that there have been conversations about testing a drug called hydroxychloroquine on this community within certain areas. Um, President Trump in the U.S. has called it a game changer. There's certainly no evidence that it would be a game changer or do anything to prevent people from getting infected. Um, and there are a series of serious side effects like heart attacks that could come from it. So um, the people I talked to in there are worried about being treated like guinea pigs. And it's an area that's really, it's, it's such a thriving community. It's really, um, it's such a backbone of this city. There's a billion dollars of economic output that come out through this city each year. And so, you know, to have this community really build Mumbai into the, to the place that it is, and then to have them feel so abandoned is really unfortunate. I mean, the, the, the first thing a government should do in that case is also providing proper sanitation because I suppose, you know, they, they, there's a lack of access to, you know, soap and water and, 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 you know, for what you're supposed to wash your hands all the time. So I suppose, you know, that would be that would be kind of the first step. And I, I guess in these slums as well, people can live on a day to day 
basis in a way, especially in terms of getting food and being able to buy food. So I suppose they're no longer able to sell food outside the, the slum, obviously. How, how are poor populations handling this, for example? I know you said they had coupons. What? Yeah, well, there are some people who have these ration cards. Um, there are markets in Daradi that open for a few hours each day. Again, that leads to no social distancing. Hundreds of people stand in line for several hours to get um, these small amounts of food, whatever they can buy. There's very little savings that people have. And if they have savings, they've largely drained through it. So so there are markets, but they're, they're really challenging um, for people to be able to access food in general. The government passed a relief bill um, towards the end of March that was supposed to target people who are very poor. Unfortunately, it's really not a big enough bill. It was something like 1% of this country's GDP, um, $22 billion worth. Most or many other countries have passed bills that are, you know, giving relief packages that are closer to 20% of their GDP. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned, a lot of these migrant workers don't qualify. A lot of these day workers don't qualify. So um, there are a number of NGOs that are just doing their absolute best to help as many people as possible. The government says that they've delivered it, uh, something like 20 to 25,000 packages of food. Um, but in a, in a community that's a million people, that's just not enough. Do you know how things are outside big cities? Because I suppose in India, people kind of travel a lot, especially I think when when the lockdown was announced, perhaps people started traveling, you know, rushing to, to try to go back home because they were traveling. Do you know what, what the situation is like? Yeah, yeah. So um, there are roughly 100 million migrant workers who come to big cities um, to, to work and then send money back home to their families. And uh, they are very, very worried about their families back home who depend on them for everything and now they don't know if their families in these rural communities have enough food, um, just how desperate the situation might actually be back home. Like you mentioned, people started walking. Place in uh, Delhi, for example, hundreds of thousands of migrant workers started walking to reach their homes. Um, and it was a very sad situation. Some of them were traveling hundreds of kilometers and some, you know, more than 20 people died along the way. So yeah, the, the situation even outside of the big cities is also very um, difficult and people who are poor in these rural communities are also really struggling with access to food, food and supplies. One thing we've noticed, I think, over the past, what, one year and a half is growing nationalism, Islamophobia in, in India and identity politics have gotten, I think, have really risen in the country as they have kind of around the world. What was the situation like before the pandemic Pandemic, and is it getting worse now? I think what I've read is that Muslims, you know, who were already being attacked before the pandemic, they've also now been, you know, 
scapegoated for, for, for the pandemic. And I know you wrote about a small group called um, Tablijati Jamat. I'm sorry for butchering the name. It's a missionary group that um, focuses on encouraging Muslims to kind of follow a pure form of Islam. This rise in Islamophobia probably happened since, has probably been happening since around 2014, when Prime Minister Modi first took office uh, alongside the BJP. They're a Hindu national party, nationalist party. They're called, their ideology is called Hindutva. They've really worked to create a Hindu national state at the expense of the country's 200 million Muslims and um, just really have really taken on the idea of India as a secular democracy, which is unfortunate. And there are a litany of things that this government has done to make life more difficult for Muslims. Anything from changing the names of towns and streets and airports from Muslim names to Hindu names to basically codifying a law that would make citizenship very much connected to one's religion um, and make it difficult for um, Muslims to gain citizenship through a certain pathway. They've also revoked the constitutional autonomy of Muslim majority state Jammu and Kashmir and split them into two federal territories. Um, so they've done, they've done a lot of very overt actions to really instill a Hindu national state here. As for Tablighi Jamath, absolutely, they have been scapegoated very badly here for the spread of coronavirus. So Tablighi Jamath is a, like you described, uh, a Muslim missionary organization there in 150 countries. They're 100 years old, nearly. They're a peaceful group, and they have their headquarters in Delhi. And so they, they held an event well before the lockdown, and they invited people from other parts of South Asia. Thousands of people came from all over India. And sadly, a few people must have had coronavirus. And so when a number of these um, members went off into rural parts of India to work with other Muslims and, like you said, kind of bring them to what they might consider a pure form of, of Islam. They probably spread it. They, it's possible to around 17 other states. But, you know, that being said, they were far from the only organization to be having events at this time. Um, March 13th, the federal government said that coronavirus was not a national emergency and, you know, Hindu temples were having 10,000 people visiting in, you know, the course of a day or two around the exact same time as Tagliki Jamat's event. There was a funeral held uh, that led to the quarantining of 25,000 people in another state. But for whatever reason, I mean, it's not a surprise, I shouldn't say that. Um, the government and the mainstream media have really seemed to work in tandem to um, focus in on Tafliki Jamath as the cause of the spread of the virus, which is absolutely not true. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So, so the scapegoating comes both from the population then and the media and then also the government. It's who, who's doing the scapegoating? It's uh, unfortunately, it's both the right wing government that's in charge and the mainstream media. The mainstream media Aside from some exceptions, I mean, there's some some really great journalism that happens here in India, but there are some leading papers and TV channels that work quite closely with the government, 
and they've really been propagating the same kinds of vitriolic attacks. Um, the government, you know, various BJP party members have said that Tabliki Jamath members should be shot, they should be jailed. Um, you know, other prominent journalists have said, you know, there should be an investigation into the organization. One really vile uh, hashtag that was spreading on Twitter was uh, hashtag Corona Jihad. Mm. And so there was this idea that Tabliki Jamath was intentionally trying to get people sick. And so that was an idea that was then carried forward by some journalists. And so it's, it's really been a, a tag team effort to, to really focus on this one group and demonize it. And by doing so, um, it's had really um, unfortunate spillover effects for Muslims in India in general. Um, people have been kicked out of their homes, people have committed suicide because of any connections to the organization. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a very trying time for Muslims and it's certainly not been well handled by the government. Um, one thing that I should add is that we discussed the migrant workers who uh, were really caught by surprise when the lockdown was announced and then were walking home and it was really, it felt like a a really truly a national emergency that this was happening to so many people and that they felt so abandoned and um, a lot of people would suggest that the government really took up this idea of Tibliki Jamath and Muslims spreading coronavirus to distract attention from their own failings. Yeah. How have Muslims responded to this? I, I think I read over the weekend a story about you know, this, like a lot of Muslims are giving blood, I mean, especially those who are infected to try and perhaps do some testing or how have they responded to try and counter this kind of propaganda and misinformation and, you know, scapegoating? Yeah, well, I think for a lot of Muslims here, it's not been a surprise that this has happened. It's very unfortunate and frightening, but it's been just part and parcel of the kinds of things that this government has been doing. Um, and so I think that a lot of them have just been trying to stay away from a lot of the controversy and, um, you know, are, are just understandably very sad that their organization, Tabliki Jamaat, which is a peaceful organization, um, has been linked to something like this. But um, yeah, you're, you're right. There were uh, hundreds of members of Tabliki Jamaat who donated I believe plasma um, because they were infected and you know they wanted to give back after falling ill um, and and that was really that was great and it was something that countered the narrative but for those who are determined to see it as as an overt attack it won't change their minds but for a lot of other people it was it was a very heartening gesture and yeah and the mainstream media I mean those media that already spread like misinformation they they actually have to report about this otherwise nobody will will know um what's the role i mean one thing we do in the series is kind of see as well the role of um social media i know i think in india whatsapp is, is perhaps quite quite popular what's the role of um of the social media in kind of you know spreading misinformation and propaganda and um i know we know in india they've in, even in the past they've been kind of there's been like hate speech on social media and that has, you know, led to kind of real world attacks against um, Muslims in, in India. So social media has had some positive effects, but uh, it has also had a very pernicious effect in spreading 
misinformation and lies, particularly WhatsApp. It's so heavily used here. It's like a quarter of a billion people use WhatsApp. And so it has wide reach and uh, misinformation travels extremely quickly. For example, with Tabliki Jamath, a video surfaced that had nothing to do with Tabliki Jamath. I think the video might have been shot outside of India, in fact, um, but it was shared like crazy and it was purporting to say that these Muslim men were sneezing on other people to spread to, uh, coronavirus. Absolutely not true, of course. So WhatsApp has had a, a very pernicious effect, like I said. They've been doing their best as of late to try to tamp down on some of this, um, to tamp down on being such a tool for violence, but it's been coming very slowly. Very recently, I think in the last two weeks, they've changed their policies so that if a message has been forwarded frequently, it can only be shared going forward uh, with one person at a time. And WhatsApp says that this has dropped these highly forwarded messages from being sent by about 70%. So it's something. They've been elevating a bot by the World Health Organization. They've been trying to, to counter this challenge, but uh, it's really, WhatsApp especially has uh, created some pseudo-celebrities in a number of Hindu vigilante groups, for example, who have flogged, badly injured, killed Muslims for various lies uh, that they believe to be true or pretending to be true. And, and so it's, it's definitely been a problem here. Um, WhatsApp says that they can't really do as much as an organization like Facebook because it's end-to-end -end encryption. Mm -hmm. So they're doing what they can, but... Even Facebook isn't doing much. So um, perhaps one, one of the last two questions. I mean, Muslims right now around the world are marking Ramadan. How, how is that? Have you seen what's happening in India? Because everybody, I mean, usually it's such a community-centric, you know, yeah. kind of moment and, and feast. And I, I have Muslim friends who are strongly, like, struggling. They don't know how to, you know, market and celebrate it. How, how, is, how is it in India? Especially amid this kind of very kind of ugly scapegoating. It's, it's normally such a big part of um, life here, especially in Mumbai. Um, there's big gatherings at the very end of the night and it's very warm and very social. Unfortunately, that is not the case this year. I think that for Muslims here, it's been a more subdued affair. Thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for, for your journalism. I think it's very important to know what is happening in India, especially since everybody kind of concentrates on its own problems and own country. So thank you for, for doing the best you can to report about this. Thank you so much for your time.